0: And If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And this morning we will begin in chapter 4. Uh, what an incredible song. Don't you love that so many of the songs that we sing, the lines of the song come straight from passages in God's Word. And just as I was enjoying that song, I, 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 I could think of a reference for almost every single line. Uh, what a great song uh, that we will glory in our Redeemer. When we uh, attempt to do things in life that are difficult, when we set some new goal, we, we chase after some uh, calling that God has put upon our lives, uh, oftentimes we go through a series of emotional stages. And so let me walk through this with you, and I think you'll find these very familiar. When we start to do something new, oftentimes we begin with excitement, I'm gonna do something I've never done before. God's called me to be a part of something, to teach a class. Maybe you're newly married. There's, there's some big task in your future and, and you're excited about it. Some, something that you're gonna change. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a new career. Maybe it's a new direction in school, but there's a new beginning and we're excited about it. Then the next emotion uh, is usually fear. When we begin to think about some of the difficulties that we're going to face, when we, when we really get into the, the place where we've got to get started and we've got to think about the price that's going to be paid, sometimes the excitement then turns into fear. But then the next emotional stage, as we get started, is usually a feeling of relief, finally. We're moving down that road, we're, we're accomplishing something, we're chasing after our dreams, we're doing what God wants us to do, and so then there's some relief. But we don't get very far into it, and usually the next emotional stage hits us really hard. We face some obstacles, we get into that middle part, and we just want to quit. We we didn't realize it was going to be so hard. We didn't realize it was going to take so long. We didn't realize all the obstacles that were going to be in front of us. It's that middle stage that's the dangerous stage. But if we press on through that, the next stage... Uh, is, is also a stage of excitement because maybe we then can see the finish line. We're not there, but we're close. We're close enough that we can see we're almost there. And so it seems to add energy to our lives and it just helps us to press forward. And then the final stage, of course, is, is when we arrive and we're, we celebrate and we're enthused that, that we've accomplished something, something that's significant, something the Lord wanted us to do. And so there are those different stages. The most difficult of those, of course, is that middle stage. It's when we really begin to face the obstacles, we've, we've moved past the excitement of getting started, but we're not yet close enough to the finish line to be motivated to, to push through with just one last push. It's that middle stage that's dangerous. And it's that middle stage where many people quit. And it's because of that middle stage that many of us have used to stories. You know what a used to story is? I have some used to stories. Maybe yours sounds like this. I used to be in the ministry, or I used to be married, or I used to be in school, or I used to be serving the Lord, or I used to be studying for ministry, or I used to be in an exercise program, or I used to be in a daily Bible reading program, or I, I used to be chasing after the calling that God had put upon our lives, my life. We get into that middle stage and oftentimes we quit because the obstacles are just too much and that's the end. I remember a few years ago... Uh, My family was in Gatlinburg, uh, Tennessee in the summer and we decided, some of my family, me and Donna and Emily, uh, decided that we would get up the next morning and we would go on a hike and we decided to hike up Mount Leconte. Even have you ever been there, any of you ever hiked that? Uh, somebody's hiked it back there. It's, a, it's probably not a big hike for a lot of you who do those kind of things, but for us, it was, it was pretty challenging. I've got the statistics here. It's 10.7 miles up and back. This doesn't sound too, too hard, but it's 3,008 feet of elevation, and some of it, you're on your hands and knees. Uh, They tell us, uh, they told us before we began that it would take about eight hours. I think it took us a little longer than that. Uh, But we, we, we were going on this hike and we were excited as we talked about it in the days leading up. We were excited. We, we read about it. There's a, there's a hotel on top of the mountain. It's a rustic hotel, but you get up there, you can grab a bite to eat and uh, I guess you could sleep if you were really tired. Uh, It's interesting. The only way to get to the hotel is to hike up the mountain. The way they get supplies to the hotel is with a train of llamas. And so, I'm not kidding, they line up these llamas and they head up the trail and they take all of the supplies that are needed at the hotel. So we were excited, Well, then we started to get things together. How much food do we need to take? How much water do we need to take? Who's going to carry the water? We started dealing with some of the questions and then it was, a, it, we, we were a little Fearful. We started off early in the morning in case it took us too, too long. We didn't, wanna, uh, we didn't want it to be dark when we got back. So there was excitement, and then there was fear. And then we got started, and it felt good. It, it, it was beautiful. We are walking through the forest. Uh, there were a lot of people around us, and they were enjoying nature. And, and we just kept on going, and we enjoyed it until we got about halfway <laughs> We got about halfway, we were about three or four hours into the uphill part of this. And I mean, I, I suppose it was beautiful, but it looked exactly like it did three hours ago. <laughs> you know, after a while, the beauty seems to fade and, and we were tired and we were thirsty and we had some water, but you know, we were debating, do we drink the water now and die later? Or do we die now, <laughs> drink the water later? <laughs> you know, at the three hour mark, there were far few, fewer people around us. Uh, You know, in the beginning there was a lot of encouragement, now there's just uh, other people uh, who are panting and tired and exhausted. And we really wanted to quit. In fact, there were a few conversations between the three of us about whether or not this was the wise thing that the Lord in heaven wanted us to do. But we pressed on and then finally we got within maybe an hour of the top and we could begin to see the sights because you'd come to these uh, high places. And you could look down on the valley. It was a different scenery. It was beautiful. And we were passing people who were returning, people who had already made it up, uh, who had gone much faster than us. And so they were coming down and they were encouraging us. It's worth it. You can make it. Keep going. And so we made it to the top and we celebrated and we were excited and, and, it, and it was all worth it. But it was the middle stage that almost stopped us. And I imagine that most of you right now are identifying in some area of your life, you're identifying, you're thinking about that middle stage. That's when it's so easy to quit. Well, when we come to Nehemiah chapter four, Nehemiah is in the middle stage. Nehemiah, God has placed upon his heart uh, this, uh, this desire, this calling to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem, to restore the city of Jerusalem, bring revival to the city of Jerusalem and, and he's excited to get started and he has a great start. But when we come to Nehemiah chapter four, he's right in the middle. He can't really see the finish line. He's not that close to the end. But he's in the middle where there are all kinds of obstacles and there are all kinds of difficulties. If this project is going to fall apart, now is when it'll fall apart. Nehemiah chapter four, Nehemiah chapter six that we'll look at next week. This is the middle parts. But Nehemiah, spoiler alert, he presses on and he finds great success. So the question I want us to answer this morning is how did Nehemiah survive the middle part? How did he press on with what God had put upon his heart when it was tough, when there were obstacles, when he was ready to quit? What allowed him to be successful? That's what I want us to learn together this morning. Now before we just jump into that, uh, let me give you a disclaimer. Oftentimes, and I'm, I'm afraid, Churches, pastors like me, sometimes we contribute to this uh, and it's unfortunate, but oftentimes people come to church and they hear messages about pressing on and, and, and don't quit and all the things we're going to talk about this morning and they assume that that is how they can have a right relationship with God. They come to a message like this and, and maybe they don't know Christ as their savior. They, they know their life is filled with sin and they need forgiveness and they need a new start and they need a touch from God. And they think that what they need to do is just try harder, try harder. If I'll just do what that pastor said and try harder, eventually God will be pleased with me. But listen, we're going to talk about trying harder this morning, but trying harder is not how to have a right relationship with God. We're going to talk about when God puts a, a, a calling on your life, that there are just some things you need to do to press on, but the way that you respond to the Lord, the way you have a relationship with God is not try hard or do better, but it's to trust in Christ. I remember when when I fully understood the gospel for the first time, uh, it was in a, in a youth service on, on a retreat and... And somebody was teaching and preaching and and I'd heard some of this before but it just not clicked with me But on that night I recognized that not only was I guilty of sin But that no amount of trying harder and doing better was ever going to change that first of all even if I could live perfectly from that point forward I was already guilty of sin and I was Already separated from God and the Bible said that the wages the result of my sin was to be death. And so even if I did do better, I wasn't gonna erase the past. And I also knew I wasn't gonna do better. I mean, we make all the commitments we wanna make that we will never sin again, but you will fail quickly in those commitments. And I knew then that there was nothing I could do to earn God's favor. There was nothing I could do to merit God's forgiveness except to trust in one who did earn God's favor, trust in one who who, who had lived a perfect life and who had paid the penalty for the sin that I had committed. And so on that night, I put my trust in Jesus. I said to the Father, I, I can't clean up my life such that it will be please, pleasing to you. But I trust that Jesus lived a perfect life, and I trust that Jesus paid for my sin, and so the merit that I offer you is not what I have to offer, but what Jesus is going to offer and has offered for me. And God saved me from my sin, and he forgave me of my sin. Not because of me, but because of the works of Christ and I trusted in that and God began to change my life, still changing my life. So hear this, we're going to talk about pressing on. We're going to talk about do better. Those are important lessons that we learn from this passage, but to have a right relationship with God, it begins, it ends. The whole thing is about trusting what Christ has done, surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. God, I surrender to you. And based on the merit of Christ's life and the merit of Christ's death, that's why I seek your forgiveness. And that's the basis upon which we can be forgiven, on which we can be saved. Now, with that in mind, let's look though specifically at how Nehemiah faced this middle part and how he faced the obstacles and how he overcame. So, Nehemiah chapter four, verse one says, when Sanballat, uh, we'll just pause there. We were introduced to Sanballat just briefly last week. Nehemiah has three adversaries, if you will, as he rebuilds the wall, Sandballot and Geshem and Tobiah. We'll see two of those three come back up here in chapter four. We'll see them again in chapter six. He has these enemies. He has these that are, that are seeking to stop the work of God. And that's who he mentions here in verse one. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious he mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria. And he said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt offerings back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah, that's one of the other adversaries, then Tobiah the Ammonite who was beside him said, indeed, if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. So these critics uh, stand against Nehemiah and those in Jerusalem and seek to stop the work. Now let's skip down a little bit, and we're going to read the verses we've skipped in a moment. But just to catch the story, let's skip down to verse 10. It says, In Judah it was said, Judah is the region in which Jerusalem, the city, uh, existed. In Judah it was said, the strength of the laborer fails. Since there is so much rubble, will we never be able to rebuild the wall? They're in the middle part. Oh, this is harder than we thought. There's more rubble in the road than we expected. The walls are too hard to build. It's hard. They're in the middle part. They're tempted to quit. Look at verse 11. And our enemy said, they won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. And when the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us again and again, time and again, Everywhere you turn, they attack us. So he's in the middle part. Everything's going against him. He has these obstacles, he has these enemies. uh, He has this physical threat on his life and the lives of those uh, there building the walls. Uh, First thing I want you to notice before we get into the details of the obstacles, it's, it's just this something that Nehemiah recognized. That we have an adversary. And, and for Nehemiah, it wasn't primarily Sanballat or Tobiah or Geshem. No, no, no he had a different adversary. Satan was his adversary. Now, I don't want to get so mystical, and I know people are uncomfortable with those things, but that's the testimony of Scripture, that we have an adversary, we have an enemy who stands against us, who works through people, who works through circumstances, who who works through our thoughts and and our emotions and our attitudes. We have an enemy that seeks to stop us from doing what God calls us to do. Anytime God calls you to do something, the adversary every time will step in the way of that and seek to find some way to stop what God wants to do. It is, it is a universal thing. The only people who don't face adversaries are those who aren't doing anything for the Lord. And so Nehemiah faced some adversaries and his one adversary was Satan. Let me just read to you a few verses that remind us of this. Ephesians 6.12 in the New Testament it says for our struggle is not against flesh and blood uh, and that means our struggle is not primarily with people it, it wasn't primarily with San and Tobiah no our, our struggle is against the rulers against the authority against the cosmic powers of this darkness against evil spiritual forces in the heavens we have a spiritual adversary John 10 10 Jesus said a thief and he's referring to Satan A thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We have an adversary that seeks to stop us. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded, be alert. He's he's saying, listen to this, pay attention to this, be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. We have an adversary. Ephesians 6 goes on to speak of the schemes of Satan, how he has a strategy to mess us up, to stop us from doing what God has called us to do. It talks about the flaming arrows of the evil one, the things he does to stop us. Well, let's look at some of the things he did to to try to stop Nehemiah and the people from rebuilding the wall. First of all, ridicule. So let's go back and look at what we read. Verse 2 says, Before his colleagues, speaking of at this, uh, this critic, before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria, he said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? And just hold your finger there. Uh, your Bible might not say by themselves, it might say for themselves. Uh, that's what it says in the, in the original. Uh, the, the first thing he's that the enemy's doing is, is ridiculing his intentions. Why is it that Nehemiah is doing this? He's just doing it for himself. I mean, we need to be careful. Haven't you experienced this when you're serving the Lord? You have this thought, people may accuse you of doing something for the wrong motives. And we need to be very careful that we do things for the right motives, but we should never let that fear paralyze us and keep us from doing anything. So the first thing he was ridiculed about were, were his intentions. He says next, will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Now his determination is being ridiculed. Will he ever finish it? Don't you know that Satan will whisper in your ear when you're trying to accomplish something that God's put upon your heart? Satan will say, you'll never get to the end. You'll never finish this. Look at your track record. We need to recognize that behind every great success are a number of failures. We don't often see that when we look at people who have been successful. I was in a pastor's conference a couple of weeks ago with, uh, with Johnny Hunt, and you may or may not know that name. I, uh, Johnny Hunt grew a great church in Atlanta, uh, started very small, one of the largest churches in the nation now. Uh, but Johnny Hunt's influence uh, far beyond his church, I, I, I believe he's probably as responsible for more people in the United States coming to know Christ in an indirect way than any Anybody that's living today. Some of the things he have done, especially in the, some of the northern states and, and the western states, just amazing. So if you'd have asked me to sit down and, 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 and write out his resume before I uh, talked with him a couple of weeks ago, I could have done that. I could have listed 50 accomplishments, that uh, think, just extraordinary things the Lord had done through him. But I couldn't have listed a failure. In my mind, his life was just one success after another. For all these years, he just was successful. But, but as he was talking to me and some other pastors a couple of weeks ago, he began to talk about all the failures. How he has had decades of failures. But those failures have formed the foundation of the success that he's experienced because he just kept on going. But here we see the same thing. Nehemiah is being ridiculed for his lack of determination. He's tempted to quit. Let's just keep reading there at the end of verse 2. Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Here his his resources are being criticized, uh, ridiculed. Uh, The Sam Ballard is saying that he doesn't have enough stuff to do this and you know He doesn't that there's not enough stuff to rebuild the walls They had to trust in the Lord if we're going to accomplish something We're just going to have to trust that sometimes the Lord's going to provide the strength the Lord's going to provide the resources The Lord's going to provide the know-how the Lord's going to provide the help if all we ever do in life is what we have the stuff and the ability to do we won't do much But people who do extraordinary things are people who trust that God will provide. Well, let's continue to read verse three. We see that his abilities are criticized. Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. Uh, He was was ridiculing his his abilities. I just think sometimes there, there are things we can say that break the heart of God. Things like this. I just can't do that. I just don't know enough. I'm just not gifted enough to do that. I just don't have the right personality or the right intellect or the right ability. I could never be a missionary. I could never be a teacher. I, I could never share my faith with a lost person. I, I, I won't be successful at what God has put upon my heart to do. Listen, yes you will. With the partnership of the Lord, we can do anything that God has called us to do. And then. The next weapon that Satan used to try to stop Nehemiah was discouragement. Look back down in verse 10 that we read a moment ago. In Judah it was said, the strength of the laborer fails since there is so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. Do You sometimes quit because you get discouraged. Uh, my, um, we all have weak areas in our lives. Uh, do you have some weak areas? Th- there are two things, there are probably way more than two, but uh, there are two areas in my life that I am, especially, and I know. Uh, from uh, from a lot of years, that I am especially vulnerable to the attacks of Satan, and I'll share one of those with you this morning. It's uh, it's right here. It's discouragement. I, I can get discouraged. My, my wife will tell you it's sort of been the twenty five year running joke in our family. I mean, it's sort of joke. It's sort of not the joke uh, when I will come home and say to her, "Do you think I could get a job delivering pizzas?" Do you think that they would let me cook the popcorn at the movie theater? Now, if you're the popcorn guy, and no, no offense at that at all, but, but sometimes I just think, you know, if I could cook the popcorn, I mean, what do you have to do to get that job? I could order the popcorn. I could organize the popcorn. I could inventory the popcorn. I could cook it. I could sell it. I could clean it up. And listen, there would be no stress in that. Why can't I have that job, Lord? Let me be the popcorn guy. I just get discouraged so quickly. But that's one of Satan's attacks. And we should recognize it as such. And then the next attack is the attack of fear. You see it in verse 11. Our enemies are threatening our lives. Sometimes fear is what throws people off. Makes them quit what God has called them to do in the middle part. And then verse 12, there's just negativity. Look at this again. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, that's how it says it in my Bible, and that's a good uh, translation. But in the original, it says that they came to me 10 times. Now in Hebrew, that's an idiom, and it just means they kept coming. Maybe it was 10, maybe it was 100. Uh, but but it's interesting that these people kept just coming to Nehemiah and complaining. Oh, Nehemiah It's hard Nehemiah. We don't have enough rocks Nehemiah. We don't have enough timber Nehemiah uh, Freddie over there is not doing his part and Sally's not doing her part and and they just kept complaining and complaining and Complaining and Satan used that as a weapon, but what did Nehemiah do? Here's what we need to know this morning. If you're in the middle part How do you keep going? How do you stay in the marriage until God can bring a blessing? How how, how can you keep going in the child rearing when it's stressful and it's hard and it's difficult? How do you keep going in the ministry that God's called you to do, in the career, in the school, in the classes? How do you keep going in the middle part? Well, I think Nehemiah did three things here. Three things. This will be simple. Three things that made the difference. So many people quit in the middle. Nehemiah didn't because he knew three things. Number one, give uncontrollable obstacles to God in prayer. Now look back with me, some verses we didn't read a moment ago, verse four. So these uh, attacks of Satan, he was ridiculed, he was criticized, he was threatened, he was discouraged. All these things came and look at his response in verse four. He begins to pray. He says, listen, our God, he's talking to God, he's praying. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their, now listen to this, this will bother you if you really pay attention. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. What did he pray about Sanballat? Lord, take Sanballat and run him out of here and let the enemy capture him and let him be punished in the cruelest ways. Look at verse five. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. Now that raises a couple of questions. First, the obvious one, and then maybe a more important one. Should we pray like Nehemiah prayed? Well, in fact, you may be surprised to find that this prayer, this kind of prayer, Uh, is prayed by saints of God throughout the Bible. Many times in the book of Psalms, uh, David prays like this. In fact, Psalm 510 says, punish them, God, and let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. And and, and some of the prayers are much more severe than that. In fact, in your uh, discussion guide for the message this morning, I list some of these. They're called imprecatory prayers. Should we pray God's judgment down on people? Uh, who stand in the way of God's work, well, first of all, you should love everybody. And there ought not be anything that somebody can do that would make you stop loving them. If you're not loving somebody because of something that they have done, that says more about you than it does them. We should love them. Secondly, if you're embittered towards somebody, that's your problem. That's your sin. And we should never let ourselves get bitter towards somebody. No matter what they have done, we should have a forgiving spirit. But of course, we should pray that God's work goes forward. I've prayed this. You've prayed this. Should have prayed this. I've seen God answer this in in, in just amazing ways. And so, should we pray like this? Yes. Uh, But the second question, and I said this maybe is even more important. uh, What does this say that we should do? When we face obstacles and don't have the resources or the ability to overcome, well, we will. There's just going to be times when you're not going to have enough money. There are going to be some sin ballots you can't do anything about. There are going to be some Tobias that you can't reason with. There there are going to be some some all kinds of obstacles that are going to come your way. And you don't have it within you to solve the problem. What should you do? Exactly what Nehemiah did. You should give that to God in prayer. You see, you do the things you can do, let God do the things that God can do. Don't fret over the things you can't do, they're not for you. Let God do those things. Don't sit around and say, well I'm just gonna have to quit because there are things I can't do. No, you just do the things you can do and in prayer give the rest of those to the Lord. I had something, used to have this on my desk a number of years ago. Uh, I thought about that this morning. I, I should put it back there, uh, but so a pastor told me this a long time ago, and, and, and so I copied this from somebody, but but, but this just brings clarity to, to those times when, when we want to quit because there are obstacles we can 't overcome. Listen, God takes total responsibility for the life that is totally committed to him. You just be committed to him, you just be a person of prayer, and you do the things you can do, and let God do the things that you can't do. That's what Nehemiah did. He, he couldn't solve the sand ballot problem. He couldn't solve the Tobiah problem. He couldn't go to the bank and borrow money for more rocks and stones. There's just some things he couldn't do. So he said, okay, I'll do the things I can do. I'll pray about the other things and I'll trust God. And that's how he made it through the middle part. So what do we do? We get in the middle part and we think of all the obstacles and we say, well, I've got to quit because I don't have the resources. No, you need to, Divide the job between yours and his. Listen to how Paul says it. Philippians 4, 6. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Wish I had time to preach on that, but the peace of God, which which is beyond all understanding, means that you can have peace that doesn't even make sense sometimes because you're facing all these obstacles. You ought to be stressed out, but you have peace. Because you've given them to the Lord. Because you've given them to the Lord. First Peter 5, 6, and 7. I know I, I use this verse often in my messages. Uh, it's just such a powerful verse. The command is humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So pray, pray. Come before the Lord when you have obstacles and pray. So humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. It says, says, you trust the Lord and the Lord will solve the obstacles. He he will solve the problems and remove the obstacles when it's time. In the meantime, trust the Lord. That's what Nehemiah did. He gave the uncontrollable, the unchangeable obstacles to the Lord in prayer. The second thing we must do that Nehemiah did is we must simply refuse to quit. Look back at verse 6. It says, so we rebuilt the wall. This is after all of this, all the ridicule and all the sandballot stuff happens. Uh, the Tobias stuff has happened at this point. So, so verse six, so we re- rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. Notice he didn't stop. He just kept going. The people kept going. They had the will to work. All these problems. Did he solve the problems first? No. And I don't, I'm not saying he just ignored them. He didn't ignore them. He prayed about them. He gave them to the Lord. But he didn't let the problems make him stop. He just pressed on. Look at verse 15. When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. Now this seems so simple. It's, it, maybe it seems like it shouldn't be said. But this is so important. When we're in that middle part, we just, we just need to keep going. We must refuse to quit. Look, look at verse 14, one more verse here. Look, this ought to be our rallying cry. You, you might underline verse 14, because if you're, if you're about to quit, this needs to be your, uh, the, the thing you say, this, this, this should be your motto. It says, after I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people. So here it is. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He said, remember who it is we serve. Nothing is impossible for God. And keep on the task. You know, when we get in a storm, that is not the time in the middle of the storm for us to quit and reevaluate what God wants us to do. Now, now, listen to me. See, sometimes we're trucking on and we're doing whatever God's called us to do, and it gets really hard. And that's when we stop and we say, You know, is this really what God wants me to do? Maybe I ought to take a week and pray about it and reevaluate. You don't need to reevaluate in the middle of the storm. In the middle of the storm, you need to press on. You need to remember what God told you to do when times were easier and when times were calmer, and you need to stay the course in the storm there may be a time on the other side of the storm there may be a time to look back and reevaluate and adjust your course but in the storm don't quit in the middle don't quit i i i i have a lot of minister friends that that'll call sometimes and they'll say well listen Noel, i'm you know i'm struggling and i don't know what i'm going to do i'm in the middle of a storm i'm thinking about quitting or i'm thinking about changing churches or i'm thinking about when we get in that middle part we think about all those things and, and you know, I don't know a lot of things, but I point to this part of, of, Nehemiah chapter four and I say to them, listen, you may need to quit. You may need to change churches. You may need to go to another direction, but not in the middle of the storm right now. You just need to keep going because your, your decision maker is, uh, is, is broken right now. I mean, you're in the middle of the storm. You just need to stay the course. Nehemiah right here in the middle of the storm said, I refuse to quit. And then number three, this one's a little more subtle, but it's, it's very important. We need to plan and prepare for more obstacles. Now look at verse 16. We didn't read this a while ago, but it's important. It says, from that day on, so they're continuing to build the wall, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all of the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other hand. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building and the trumpeter was beside me. And so they continued to build the wall, but notice they set these guards with with weapons. And some of, the, some of the builders, depending on what part of the wall they were building, they built with one hand. They held a sword with the other hand. Other people had a sword strapped to them. Why, why were they doing those things? When well, Nehemiah understood that she just needed to decide that not only are we facing obstacles now, but there are going to be obstacles in the future. And you have to anticipate that so that they don't surprise you. You just got to decide, I know there are going to be some tough times. So I'm going to live with with that thought in mind that it's not all going to be easy. And I'm not going to quit as soon as it gets hard because I know it's going to get hard. If you take a defensive driving course, what do they teach you? They teach you in defensive driving course that when you're driving down the road, you just need to assume that everybody around you is crazy. Okay? You need to assume that everybody around you is texting on their phone while they're putting their makeup on, while they're eating a taco. And so you need to drive suspicious of everybody. You're looking around because you you never know when somebody's going to turn in front of you or come to an unexpected stop. You're aware that there could be problems. We should live like that so that we don't quit when it gets hard. So that we don't marriage year four, oh no, I married a sinner. You know, you come and tell me, I'll, I'll tell you what I said. It took you four years to figure that out. You should have asked me before you married her. I've known she was a sinner. Of course she married a sinner. Not near as bad as the sinner she married, but you married a sinner. <laughs> and so now's not the time to quit. You should have known you married a sinner. You should have known that she has a sinful mind and a sinful heart. And there are going to be some obstacles. And, and, and you're going to cause at least half of them. And, and you, need to, you need to go into this marriage saying... When obstacles come, we're not going to quit. You need to start this ministry. When the obstacles come, we're not going to quit. You need to accept that Sunday school class. You're teaching for the youth department, or the children's department, saying, I know things are going to be hard some days, but I'm not going to quit. You you need to go to school and sign up for school and say, listen, I'm going to chase this dream and I know things are going to be hard, but I'm not going to quit. So how do we anticipate? uh, Pastor, how can we be practical about that? Well, I think the most practical thing I could share with you is, uh, is a story and I didn't ask permission this morning, so I won't give you the name, but, but I remember someone in our church and I'm sure they wouldn't mind me sharing, but I just out of respect, I'll be careful. Um, we had somebody, a young man in our church, young family, he and his wife, uh, he had a, what could have been a life threatening illness, uh, required surgery. This was maybe two years ago. And, um, you know, I, I, don't know why it just seems so much more serious when people have young children, but, uh, he and his wife had, still have young children. And, and I remember driving to the hospital to see them that morning. I didn't know them well. Uh, I know them a lot better now. In fact, I was in a ministry meeting with him Thursday night, just so impressed with he and his family. Uh, but I was driving over to, to the hospital and, and I got here, they were at Memorial and I found them in the waiting room. There was just two of them just the two of them, and they were reading the Bible together. And I, I knew when I saw that, that, uh, you know, this, this is a spiritual couple. But I began to talk to them, and I, and I, I really, I was prepared for the panic. It, it, you know, as pastor, I mean, that's sort of my job, I and mean, they're panicked over this. And I assumed before I got there, and they're going to need me to try to calm them down and talk about peace and the love of God. And, but, you know, they weren't panicked at all. And, uh, the, the wife said this, she said that somebody else had said to her some months earlier that when a crisis comes, let it find you already on your knees. I thought, wow, that's better than any sermon I've ever preached in my life. She said, pastor, when this crisis came, it found us already on our knees. We're fine. And physically, he's fine now. Surgery was a success, and and he's doing well, and they're doing well. But, But how do we prepare for future obstacles? Let's let the crises, when they come, find us already on our knees. So you need to work with one hand and hold the sword with the other. And the swords that you're walking with the Lord daily, reading your Bible and praying and trusting God... There will be some obstacles, some crises. Let them find you already on your knees. I I, I want to end with a with a sappy story. Can I do that? I I, I don't like to uh, end my sermons with sappy stories, uh, especially that, that don't just come from scripture. Uh, well, sappy stories don't come from scripture. Let me correct that before I get a letter in the mail tomorrow. But, um. But but there there is a, a an historic story that that I pull out every once in a while and I read it to myself. And you may be familiar with this. This is a favorite end of sermon story that pastors use. And so, so maybe you've heard it before. It's a good story. Uh, maybe, I think there's a movie about it now. I've not seen the movie. I'd like to, um, but let me share this story with you. I, and I'll ho- hopefully help fit it in with this in a moment. It's about Ernest Shackleton. Do you know who that is? Some of you are thinking, I already heard this story. Uh, but Ernest Shackleton was a British polar explorer in the early 20th century. And his, he's most noted for his failed Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. He tried to be the first person to cross Antarctica. Uh, he was not, but that was his goal. So let me walk you through his, uh, his journey. He departed South Georgia Island on December 5th, 1914, with 22 people. He titled his ship, he named his ship Endurance, and it was rightly named. On January the 19th, so this is about six weeks into the journey, his ship got stuck in ice, and the ice began to drift south, which, Antarctica, that makes it worse. On May the 1st, The sun set for 70 days. He was still stuck in the ice. On July the 11th, he's still stuck in the ice, six months later. And at that point, the Weddell Sea, where the ice was, experienced one of its most severe blizzards. The temperature was negative 23 degrees Fahrenheit. The sustained winds were 70 miles per hour. 100 tons of snow piled up against the ship. It nearly covered it. On November 21st, 1915, this is um, almost a year later, still in the ice, the ship sunk. It had been stuck in the ice for 281 days. All of the men escaped with just two life rafts. After four weeks of camping on the ice, um, on December 20th, they began to walk and pull the life rafts toward Elephant Island. Uh, they found water uh, on April the 9th, this is a year and a half after the journey began, and they rowed to Elephant Island. The first time uh, they had touched land was when they found it 16 months after they had begun their journey. Now Elephant Island is a small uninhabitable glacier island, and so they had arrived somewhere that didn't help very much. The men dug up old seal bones and stewed them in seawater for food. Shackleton, Shackleton rather, uh, set sail from Elephant Island to South Georgia with five men in a small lifeboat. The ocean south of Cape Horn where they were traveling is known to be the most treacherous and storm swept area of water in the entire world. So on the fourth day of their journey in this little lifeboat, they experienced a blizzard. The lifeboat began to freeze and almost sunk. On the eleventh day, Shackleton thought he saw a break in the clouds above the horizon, but it turned out to be the crest of an 80-foot tidal wave. Those in the lifeboat lost all their provisions, including the ice that they were melting for drinking water. Later land was spotted, but a hurricane swept the lifeboat further away and they nearly died of thirst. When land was finally reached, they discovered that they were on the wrong side of the island. So Shackleton and one of his men began the 17 mile trek over 4,500 foot wide glaciers. At that point, nobody had ever successfully climbed a glacier that large. The first time they came down the other side of the glacier, they came down on the wrong side and they had to do it again. The second time they climbed for 36 hours without stopping because they feared if they stopped they would freeze to death. But finally they reached a whaling station. So Shackleton immediately got a ship and sailed back to Elephant Island to rescue his men. He got within 60 miles of the island but had to turn back due to the ice. He got another ship and got within 100 miles of the island and had to turn back because of ice. He got another ship and got again within 100 miles of the island but was turned back because of mechanical failure. And then he got a final ship and he rescued the men on August the 30th, 1916, almost two years after they had set sail, so, All of the men survived. Now what's the lesson from that? There are going to be some storms. And there are gonna be some cold and lonely days. But if God has called us to do it, and we will give the obstacles that we can't handle to him, If we will refuse to quit, we lean upon the power of God and we walk with God so the crisis will find us on our knees. There will be victory in the end and glory for God. Let me read to you two verses and we'll close with this. In Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, the Bible says, for you are saved by grace through faith and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus For good works, which God has prepared ahead of time for you to do. There is something God wants you to do. There are some walls that God wants you to rebuild. In your family, at your workplace, in your church, in ministry. What is it that God has prepared you to do? And are you ready to survive the middle part and be faithful to the Lord? Head bowed, eyes closed. Let me pray. Father, you are so good to us. To make us a part of your plan. To call us to to do something for the building of your kingdom. To give us an opportunity to be be married and have a a marriage that brings honor and glory to you. There's so many ways you have called us. But Father, there's so many ways we quit in the middle part. I pray that we will be Nehemiahs. uh, That we will trust you. That we will trust you with the hard parts and that we will experience the victory that comes from leaning on you. Give us the courage that we need, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we respond to the Lord.